reading the same text that we read last Sunday and looking at the next portion of our Advent series, and that is God became human. God became, excuse me, when Tip was praying, I took a sip of water and it went right down the wrong direction. I knew this could be detrimental for the rest of our time this morning. I prayed a brief prayer uh, that God would be kind. His kindness might be seen in multiple ways. Uh, God became human. Last week, we looked at Jesus as fully God in all of his glory in the first uh, few verses of our text. And this morning, we'll look at that middle word, became. In the incarnation, as the light is coming into the world, uh, what does that look like? How does that come about? How does God bring about the miracle of the incarnation? of which we will stand in awe of this morning. So if you would actually stand in honor of reading God's word, we will read John 1, 1 through 14. Holy Scripture reads this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. This past week, I thoroughly enjoyed a land Jaeger. Anybody know what a land Jaeger is? I think I'm pronouncing that right. Okay, a land Jaeger, and it was from Owens Meats in Clay Ellum. Does anybody know Owens Meats in Clay Ellum? They're, yeah, Luke does. Luke knows what's good. Their slogan for their store is the candy store for the carnivore. <laughs> and I greatly enjoyed the land Jaeger. One thing I noticed, though, while I was enjoying it is it's a tough piece of meat. It takes a little bit with your teeth and incisors to even get a bite off. Like a good piece of jerky or something, it's tough, but it was certainly rewarding. The same is going to be true a little bit this morning. There's times where we work through tough theology. It is absolutely rewarding. Let me read you a quote. From C.S. Lewis, he writes in the introduction to a book that I made mention of a few times last week. Athanasius, writing on the Incarnation, Lewis gives a stellar introduction. 
And in there, he, in making the distinction between devotional books that often, not to put all of them in the same uh, category, but often can be more uh, fluffy or light, easy to read, meant to take something uh, home with you that morning or to have something to apply can often be lighter. And in making the distinction between devotional books that Christians often read from doctrinal books that they need to read. He says the layman and the amateur need read these things. And then he goes on to say, for my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. I love that. To be able to sit down and really work through a tough bit of theology for me, as well as Lewis writes, I have found it to be much more devotional than something that merely says it is devotional. We must work through tough theology, doctrine, doctrine that will feed our souls and that will declare the truths about God and His Word. And we will be the better for it, not only in mind, but in heart as well. This is true of the incarnation, the tough bits of theology. We saw some last week. We'll see some this week and certainly next week as we look next week at the humanity of Christ and all that it means for God to become fully human. God became human. It can be difficult. It ought to be difficult. You think of that phrase, God became human. It ought to be impossible for us to fully comprehend what is being stated in that phrase. One, we can't fully understand, comprehend God himself. We can read the scriptures and what it says about him, but our minds can't fully wrap itself around who God is, and it shouldn't be able to. We're talking about the eternal God taking on human flesh so that he can come and live perfectly, do nothing wrong, and yet willingly die on a cross to substitute his sinless life for sinful souls who put him there and who wanted nothing from him. That's hard work. That's hard. That's a tough bit of theology, but it's glorious and warming work where I hope our hearts, my heart, will, as Lewis says, sings unbidden while working our way through it. This morning, let us look at just three phrases from the text itself. Uh, As we see here in John 1, verses 6 through 13, the first is the true light comes into the darkness. The true light comes into the darkness. Verse 6 begins not by looking at the Word Himself, but one who came whose name was John. 
Now, up to verse 6, John has not, which is a different John, sorry for the confusion. John the Apostle who's writing this gospel uh, is not the same John who's given in verse 6, who is John the Baptist. But John who's writing in verse 6 has not yet told us who the word is, who he's referring to. Now, we can know from later passages, obviously, he's talking about Jesus. But in verse 6, we don't yet know that. He hasn't yet revealed that. So he comes and sets up a foil. In literature, we know this foil to be one who looks like or might be one, but is used as a point of contrast or being able to better understand our character. There was one who came sent from God, but whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Then he says in verse 8, he was not the light, but his job was to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light came into the darkness. One author states that the the advent starts in the dark. It always starts in the dark. We have a candle holder here. And at the beginning, before Advent starts, or even before this uh, service started this morning, it was dark. Nothing was lit up. And each week we've moved through Advent, we've lit another candle. And if all of the lights were off, we'd be able to better see how much light is given off by four candles instead of one, and, and yet how one candle alone sheds light into the room. Advent always starts in the dark. It is a reminder of a dark world in which we live. After the fall, in sin, sickness, and darkness, but we are a people of the light because the true light has come already. He came willingly to a dark and unreceptive people so that we would become children of God by the work of God. He became a human child that we would be spiritual children of God. He willingly came down to save us. Think of it. In the beginning, God created when it was dark. And the first thing he does is he makes light. Jesus comes when all seems dark and quiet. There's 400 silent years at the end of the Old Testament where generations have not heard from the Lord. No no new revelation has been given. Prophets have ceased. Their message was going unheeded anyway. God wasn't being listened to or obeyed. Sin reigned. Darkness, again, was over the face of the earth, it seems. And it was quiet. And Jesus comes in the midst of that darkness. And Jesus will come again when all seems lost. The world is wicked and full of sin. And in the midst of darkness, light will shine. And it gives light to everyone. Jesus comes as the true light to give light in the midst of darkness. The true light signals that there are indeed false lights. John wasn't a false light, but he wasn't the true light. He wasn't the light itself. He was a witness of the light. And yet there are indeed false lights 
that would signal to a different hope that would not come and give life, but would only bring about death. Jesus comes as the true light, the one who gives hope to those who are in darkness and who offers life to those who are dying. We would not have known what God was like apart from Jesus coming down in the incarnation. Apart from the light coming into the world, we would have remained in the darkness. Darkness spiritually, remaining in our own sins, not having any clear understanding of God's revelation apart from Jesus coming. We have revelation that's given in the Old Testament. But even that, Jesus says in Luke to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, all point to him. So apart from Jesus coming, we wouldn't have any revelation, or if we did have any, it wouldn't make any sense because its point, its meaning would be lost. So because of Jesus, we can accurately assess, access the revelation apart from the incarnation. We could not accurately access revelation apart from the incarnation, apart from Jesus coming. Jesus himself says later in the gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus was the true light that was coming into the world. If Advent starts in the darkness, this phrase, coming into the world, as John writes, gives hope that it won't always remain in the darkness. The phrase, was coming into the world, verse 9, is followed up immediately in verse 10 with the phrase, he was in the world. And yet it's here we want to park for just a little bit and look at what it means for the Son of God to be coming into the world. That light is coming, and with him comes hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness in creation, in the incarnation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 12, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus has come to shed light, not only to the world, but specifically to those who believe. In John chapter 3, verse 19, just a few verses before, a well-known verse, John 3.23, or sorry, John after John 3.16. It's Romans 3.23, sorry. But John 3.19 verses, uh, through verses 21, and this is the judgment. That light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus comes in light, in the darkness, as light. Advent starts in the darkness. We see this light coming of hope and life that is Jesus, and yet not everyone will accept it or receive it. We see that here in John's gospel, that as Jesus comes into the world, those who know him, those who are his people, reject him 
and do not believe him or receive him. And yet he still comes down to us. Still knowing all of these things. God being omniscient and knowing all things still comes down. One author writes uh, that this is considered the covenantal condescension of the Son of God. Covenantal being a relationship that we have with God himself, a promise that he gives that only he can fulfill, and condescension being a coming down, that he comes down with relational intentions. He doesn't just come down to shine a light to everyone. Hey, a light, like a lighthouse that you look at nowadays and go from the shore, that's beautiful. If you're on the Oregon coast in Cannon Beach, you can see a lighthouse and you can't get anywhere near to it unless you're in a boat maybe. And, and even then, I don't know that you can land on the small rocky area that is housing that lighthouse, but from a distance, it's nice to look at. You could see the light and that's not all what Jesus came to do. He didn't come just to be a lighthouse or a light. He came to have relationship with people and to bring redemption to them. Without covenantal condescension, we would know nothing of the mysteries of God and His character. But because of it, we're able to worship Him for who He is. Because Jesus willingly came in the flesh as the light of the world, in the midst of our darkness, not only can we see, but we can see clearly to worship same author writes, when we speak of the two natures of Christ, his divine nature and his human nature, coming together in the person of Jesus, we are not to think of the natures as equal partners, that they come together to compose the person. Instead, we have to make an important distinction, he says. We are to see the nature of deity, his godness, as intrinsic and essential to the person. The person of Jesus cannot do away with his deity or his godness, or else he's not God and he doesn't exist, and none of us do either. So it's essential, it's absolutely necessary that his deity be there. In other words, he says, Christ as a son of God has always been and cannot but be fully God. We looked at that last week. Then he goes on to say, because he, Jesus, is the Son, he is God, whether or not he takes on a human nature. Of course, he decided he would humble himself and become man, but he did not have to do that. He did it as an act of free and unmerited grace and favor to man, but his deity is essential to who he is as the Son of God. Covenantal condescension, a willingness of the one who is fully God to be willing to come down in the flesh for us. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that's what we looked at last week, did not count himself, excuse me, count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. But being found, and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this one who from eternity past has always been and is essential that he must always be fully God. He cannot but be anything else, yet willingly empties himself by taking the form of a servant. All too often theologians have looked at that phrase, but emptied himself. It's the Greek word kanao, and so from that you have these theories called the kenosis theories. What does it mean that the Son of God emptied himself? One commentator writing on the book of Philippians says that more ink is spilled over that one phrase than anything else in the book, trying to find out what it means that he emptied himself. But the text says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. The one who was only God alone, God most high, creator of the cosmos, now makes himself something he never was before. Remember, it's grace by addition. He becomes something that he was not before. Instead of the incarnation being something he leaves behind, it is something that he adds to himself. He remains fully God and yet takes on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbles himself to the point, uh, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Not only does he become a servant, but he becomes a sacrifice. And he does so for our sins. It's our death that he dies. And he dies on a cross for us. Jesus takes the form of a servant. Servants have no rights of their own. By contrast, the eternal son had always had the rights of deity. He was one with God. Yet precisely because of this, Jesus does not perceive equality with God, something to be exploited in his servanthood, in his coming to earth as a human, as a God-man. Christ literally became in human likeness, D.A. Carson says the idea is not that he merely became like a human being, a reasonable facsimile, but not truly human, a hologram, someone who is similar to, but fully human. He says rather it means that he became a being fashioned in this way, a human being. He was always God. He now becomes something he was not, a human being. The true light comes and shines in the darkness. The next phrase is, he comes to his own who do not believe him. The one who is coming into the world has now come into the world. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own. He was made fully human, just like man that he had created, and he came to them. and was just like them in that his body is exactly like the bodies that they have. He's fully human, and so are they. He came to those that he owned. He took on the same creation that they were made into. The eternal Son of God, who had always existed, took on flesh that was made in the image of God. You think about that. The eternal Son of God takes on flesh made in his own image. There'll be ramifications for us next Sunday 
as we look more closely at the humanity of Jesus and God became human. But as John writes, Jesus was coming into the world and he came to his own. And in his coming, we must first look at the virgin birth and the process by which the Son of God came to be born. This is vitally important. It's considered to be one of the several foundational truths about God, the virgin birth is, that you cannot get wrong and be a Christian. One cannot say, I don't believe in the virgin birth and be a Christian. You say, that sounds really harsh, right? Come on. It's just one element of uh, one, one thing. We have people who believe in evolution and they can be a Christian, right? Well, I think probably so. C.S. Lewis believed in evolution and was a Christian. Some of you, I just all of a sudden took C.S. Lewis off of a pedestal maybe a little bit. But certainly so. But when you come to this, why all of a sudden does the virgin birth require our assent to it, our belief in it, to be a Christian? You cannot get God wrong in His birth and in this vital piece of God coming and taking on flesh and get Jesus and His mission and His person and all that He is and all that He does right. It is so much more than just really cool that God sent His Son to be born of a virgin and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew's gospel, when he writes in Matthew chapter 1, makes it very clear that God said it must be this way. So Matthew 1, verse 18 begins, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Matthew makes it very clear, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man who also knows the ways of which babies come about, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We don't have babies by the Holy Spirit, Mary. That's not how these things work. And so I'm willing to let you go quietly and not be so shameful to you, although you completely deserve it, right? This is his position, and we would all understand that. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what she told you is the truth, that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken already before. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, and Matthew adds another helpful phrase, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Indeed, Joseph is a just and good man in the way that he obeys the angel of the Lord who comes to him. Jesus has come born of a virgin. There has been no sexual intercourse between the husband and the wife, those who are betrothed together either prior to their being married or even when they are married 
until the baby comes. Also, in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary's wondering how all of this is to be. Again, she's pretty quick on this is not the way that it's normally done. In fact, this will be the only way it's ever been done. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. That's important for us. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Now, Elizabeth, who was older, conceived a child, but by natural means. She just happened to be older. And then notice as the text goes on in Luke, verse 37 of chapter 1, for nothing will be impossible with God. Referring, I think, to both either one having a child in her old age, but even more importantly, one having a child by means of the Holy Spirit. This is incredible. Absolutely astounding that in this way, you have this one who is to be with child, the Messiah, and has never been with a man before, and receives both she and her husband-to-be, her espouse, that this is the work of the Lord, and the Lord can do whatever He wants all of a sudden breaking every scheme of natural processes to the very core of creation. God has chosen to bring about His Son in this way. Why? Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, states that the doctrinal importance of the virgin birth can be seen in three areas. And these come from him. Number one, because it shows that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. There was nothing that Mary and Joseph could have done to have brought about the Messiah in this way. Actually, it was in everything that they didn't do. God promised in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the snake. And it is, up, and it is God who brought it about by His power and His timing and according to His ways. Mankind did not invent salvation. Think up the incarnation or have anything to do with Jesus becoming human. Clearly, God does. And does so in a way that is dramatic and that no man is involved in it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Most High, he says, will overshadow you. It was all God working to bring about the birth of His Son. Number two, the second reason, not only is it does it show salvation ultimately must come from the Lord? But the importance of it is that the virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. This was the means that God chose to bring His Son into the world to save it. And think about how God created other things. It is possible that God could have just spoken His Son into existence. Jesus, you were going to go and die for sinful people. Poof, you were there. At 30 years old, he could have made him into any likeness that he wanted to. And, I mean, figuratively speaking, God could have spoken his son to existence or made him fully human without the need of human parents even. It would have been hard for us to have imagined Jesus being fully human and not really a part of the line of Adam and Eve and 
everything that we know in God's creation to be human, not have a part of the human race. God could have also, I imagine, brought about Jesus through both a human father and a human mother. And in doing so, he could have united his deity to that human life and made him without a sin nature somehow, maybe. Would have had to have done it somehow. But in that scenario, it would have been hard for us to imagine the full deity of Jesus. He's fully God, since his origin is just like ours in every way. And yet, God in his infinite wisdom and power brought about the miraculous birth of his son, highlighting at the same time the full humanity of Jesus by having him born of a woman and in the same way highlighting his full deity by having him come through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And in both ways, all of a sudden, we're highlighting both aspects that come together in the God-man, Jesus. Thirdly, it's of doctrinal importance the virgin birth is because it makes possible Christ's true humanity without inherited sin. Because Romans 5 verse 12 says, and we have a, a problem if we're supposed to have one who comes as a sinless sacrifice. Romans 5 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So because of Adam and Eve and their sin in the garden, death and sin passed to everyone. All humans now have inherited guilt and, sin and a sin nature from Adam. Every one of us are born in sin. And we call this original or inherited sin. But since Jesus did not have a human father, then the line from Adam, at least, is interrupted. So some say, couldn't the sin nature be transferred by Mary, the mother? The Bible nowhere states that sin is only passed through the fathers. Thank you very much. But this is why the Catholic Church states that Mary then has to be sinless as well, so that no sin is passed on to Jesus. The only problem with that is that the Scriptures actually never say she's sinless. She's a virgin, but she's not perfect. The Scriptures never state it, and we would also then have to surmise, what about Mary's mother? Was she perfect as well? Was there a line of women who were perfect and sinless? We won't go into any of that in answering that question, but we know that the Scriptures never say that this indeed is the case. It is the power of the Holy Spirit who comes upon Mary in a miraculous way to prevent the transmission of sin from Mary. The Holy Spirit who comes upon you to bring about this child through not the natural process can also do so in the same way not allowing the transmission of sin to come about from the mother as well. Remember that text we read? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. In this way, God brings about His Son to be born fully human and fully God in the way that He has designed for, con, for this covenantal condescension to happen so that you and I might see the light and come to eternal life. 
All of this is done for our salvation. And that's exactly how John continues. He says, verse verse 12, but to all who did receive him, remember all of these people who he came to rejected him, but to those who did receive him, who believed in his name. I don't think those are two different steps. I think in your believing, you're receiving. But to those he gave the right to become children of God, who are born Remember, Jesus is born not in the same way we've been born as humans, from a human father, human mother. Jesus is born of a mother and the Holy Spirit. And now, we who believed in him have given the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, which is all that we've known up to this point, natural birth, but you've been born of God. The same way, the power that brought Jesus into full humanity, full deity as the God-man to come to save us is the same power that allows you and I, who were born in the flesh with a sinful nature, to now be children of God. As he says, given the right to become children of God. The word there, right, is actually a word that means authority. Authority might, power, capability, all of those things we didn't have on our own. We on our own could not think of the incarnation. We on our own could not have ever done a virgin birth. But God can, and He did. And God also in that same power has brought you and I to newness of life. Galatians chapter 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God given the rights to be called children of God. Someone once said, I think it was Tim Keller, said only one person has the ability to wake up a king in the middle of the night. The only one who has the right to do that is a child of the king. We have the rights to be the child, children of God, because one came down to us in covenantal condescension, the very God-man himself. But because there is a true light, there are all of these false lights. We have to get Jesus right in the incarnation. And so because of that, you have creeds and confessions that have been written. One of them that was written over 1,500 years ago, written because of several heresies that were going around about the person of Jesus and how his deity and humanity came together, was one that was called the Chalcedonian Creed. And in its statement, it gives the most robust and excellently worded statement with all of these words that we go, I need to, remember, chew on that tough piece of me, that tough piece of theology for a while that brings great reward for us. When we think of all that is occurring in the incarnation, to think of how he comes in full deity and full humanity, 
Those who wrote the Chalcedonian Creed did a fantastic job. Let me read it to you. And then we'll read just another verse and close. But let me read this to you. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead, also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. You're you're listening to those words going, don't they all kind of mean the same thing? But in each one of those distinguishing itself from other heresies that were abounding in those days, the distinction of natures being no, by no means taken away by the union of deity and humanity, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us. And the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. These are great truths that come of the natures that God has brought together ultimately for our redemption, that we might see light in the midst of darkness, that we would have hope in the midst of a fallen world. 1 John chapter 3. Let me close with this passage. I feel like this wraps it up together, at least in my own mind. Well, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Brothers and sisters, may we go from here this morning dwelling again and again on the incarnation of the Son of God. May you drive to, not steer away from, tougher theology, but may you drive to that instead of taking mere quips and phrases and signs and memes about the Son of God. May we drive ourselves deeper into knowing who He is and that He has condescended down to us for this purpose that we should be called children of God. And because we are, may we who hope in Him purify ourselves as He Himself is pure until we see Him again 
when we shall be like him and shall see him as he is. And until that great day, may the Lord find us faithful. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us by means of the written word in which we hold in our hands and by means of the word Jesus who came in the flesh that we might understand the word that we hold in our hands. God, we are so thankful that your work of Christ and his coming down to us revealed you to us and that your Holy Spirit, the same spirit who brought about the birth of Jesus in the womb of Mary, also continues to reveal Jesus to us in our hearts and in our minds. Father, would you continue to draw us to Jesus, the person of who he is, Would you give us stamina and grace to study, to know, to chew on good, hard theology that will bring our hearts unbidden to worship? Father, would you continue to draw our eyes to Jesus, not just this time of year, but especially this time of year and all year long, that we might focus on the incarnation of the Son of God, the eternal God who came in the flesh, to take away our sins, who of his own accord condescended down to us. And may we, Father, desire to keep ourselves pure, trusting and knowing him until he comes again. Father, I do pray for us that you would grant us grace, and you would grant us a desire to know you and your word, and that you would also, if there is someone here who doesn't know the Son of God, who has heard of the covenantal condescension of Jesus, who willingly came and was, went through all of this, that he might be born and born to take away their sins, that you would open their eyes and quicken their hearts, that in hearing they would believe, and in believing they would put their faith and trust in you for all of eternity. God, would you grant new life even this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand up,